All right, so today I think we're talking about uh, what's probably the most important thing that I can talk about, one of the most core things to, you know, why we gather and why we do what we do, uh, one of the most important things and core things to your life, uh, one of the most core, important core things that you can hear. And so, you know, no pressure, right? <laughs> uh, anyway, what we talk about every week, like, I, I think it's important. It's, it's, it's all important. It's all about how do we follow Jesus. Uh, but today is at the center. Today is at the core because today it answers the question, what the heck is wrong with the world and what can be done about it? And more personally, today answers what the heck is wrong with me and what can be done about it. Um, two huge questions that honestly every single worldview, every faith, every, like everything has to, every, no matter what worldview or faith or tradition you subscribe to, all of them have to have an answer for this question. What is wrong? Because things aren't right. What is wrong and what can be done about it? And man, I think that, that the way of Jesus, that Christianity offers the best solution to that. So we're going to look at that together. We've been in the Gospel of John the past couple of weeks, journeying through um, John's account of the life of Jesus. Last time we were together, if you were with us, if not, go check it out. Everything's online on the YouTube channel uh, or on our, um, on our website. Uh, but, uh, we, we've been going through John. Last time we were together, we were introduced to a guy named John the Baptist, and like he is this messenger preparing the way for Jesus. His whole ministry, his life is about... Uh, man, just basically this message uh, to, for people to get ready, get ready, get ready. God is about to do something in the world, so get ready for what God is about to do. Uh, and we read last week this beautiful idea that John the Baptist, he comes, he comes as a witness. He comes to testify uh, about uh, Jesus. And so we read that this was John's testimony, and his testimony was, I'm just a voice in the wilderness crying out. Like, I'm just a voice, I'm just a voice. I'm just pointing to you to the one who really really matters. Um, but like that was just the first part of his, his testimony. Uh, today we're going to look at the second part of, of his message of what he's testifying um, to. And he, he testifies to this idea. He's going to ask the question, answer the, the question of, I want to I tell you who Jesus is and what he is here to do. And so that's where we're going to go today. Um, John chapter 1, we're going to pick up in verse 29. Let's go. Here we go. It says, it says the next day, um, so this is, you know, the, the day before we looked at what was last week, if you're watching this in real time, that some religious leaders came out to John, like, who do you say you are? And that's when he said, you know, I'm, I'm the voice, I'm preparing the way. They're like, that's, that's, I'm, I'm announcing something's about to happen. And so, you know, fast forward a few hours, it's now the next day, John's still out in the wilderness, still preaching, still doing his thing. Um, and that next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, look. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, I mean, it's just this, this picture, this, this word look, um, depending on the translation you have, it may say, behold, right? Like, it's kind of like, it's, it's, it's this idea of it's emphatic. It's this like, hey, pay attention, listen up. You know, John's got a crowd of, you know, tons of people out in the wilderness listening to him. And the focus is all on him in like in the midst of his, his talk or his message or whatever he's doing. Like, it's like he's just yelling. He's just like, hey, guys, pay attention, look, behold, get your eyes on the right thing. Like John, he is really, really jacked up about the person of Jesus and he's passionate uh, and he wants people's focus to be there. And so he, like, he, he's getting the attention off of him and saying, look, look to the person of Jesus. Look, behold, listen up, pay attention. Something is going down. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes 
away the sin of the world. Behold, God is about to do something. Behold, there's a new way of life and freedom and you can have meaning and purpose and significance and value in life that you never dreamed possible. Like, behold, everything is about to change. And he says that Jesus is, this is Jesus and he's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, and so it's like, hey, this is, John is, again, he's going to unpack who is Jesus and what's he going to do? What's he going to do? And, and so I want to kind of look at that backwards. I want to look at the what does he do first, because that's going to illuminate then the, the identity that, that John is kind of um, bringing to the surface about Jesus as well. So he says he comes to take away the sin of the world. Comes to take away the sin of the world. If we're being honest, that word, sin, it's a very church word. It's a very religious word. That's like the only context we use it in, right? We don't use it in our everyday lives, okay? You know, if you're a parent, your kids don't get in trouble and be like, okay, little Johnny, we need to talk about your sin, okay? I don't think you do that. It'd be a little weird if you did. Um, you know, you're not at work and your, your boss doesn't call you into his office or her office and say, hey, listen, we need to talk about some of your sins here at work. Like, you, you're, like just that, we just don't use that word. It is an exclusively kind of religious faith church kind of word and has this ominous tone to it. We toss it around oftentimes, right? Like we're sinners and we sin and, and God saves us from our sin. But what exactly does it mean? Like what's a, like a picture that we can get of this word sin? Um, to do that, to give us that picture and that definition, I want us to check out this video from Bible Project. Most people assume the Bible has a lot to say about how messed up humans are, and that's true. It's also true that the Bible's vocabulary about this topic sounds odd to modern people, using words like sin, iniquity, or transgression. And so the Bible's perspective on the human condition is often ignored or treated as ancient and backwards. This is really unfortunate, because through these words, the biblical authors are offering us a deeply profound diagnosis of human nature. Iniquity describes behavior that's crooked, while transgression refers to breaking trust. And sin? This is actually the most common of these bad words in the Bible, so let's focus on it for a few minutes. Sin translates the Hebrew word chata and the Greek word hamartia. The most basic meaning of sin isn't religious at all. Chata simply means to fail or miss the goal. Like when the Israelite tribe of Benjamin trained a small army of slingshot experts, they could sling a stone at a hair and not chata, that is, fail or miss. Or there's a biblical proverb that warns against making hasty decisions because you're likely to chata your way, miss your destination. So in the Bible, sin is a failure to fulfill a goal. But what's the goal? Well, on page one of the Bible, we learn that every human is an image of God, a sacred being who represents the Creator and is worthy of respect. And so in this way of seeing the world, sin is a failure to love God and others by not treating them with the honor they deserve. You can see this idea in the famous code of conduct given to the Israelites, the Ten Commandments. Half of them identify ways you can fail at loving God, and the other half name ways you can fail at loving people. And the fact that both kinds of failure are combined shows that failing to honor God is deeply connected to failing to honor people. This is why in the Bible, sin against people is sin against God. Like when Joseph refuses to sleep with the wife of Potiphar, he says, how could I sin against God? In Joseph's mind, failing to honor a human made in God's image is a failure to love God. And so, sin is a failure to be truly human. But there's more. A fascinating thing about sin in the Bible is that most of the time that people are failing, they either don't know it or even worse, 
they think they're succeeding. Like when Pharaoh wants to build Egypt's economy and protect national security, in his mind, this justifies enslaving the Israelites. He thinks it's good, and he's totally unaware that it's an epic fail. Or when King Saul is chasing David around the wilderness trying to kill him, he thought he was bringing a criminal to justice until he realizes he's the corrupt one. And he says, I have sinned. I am the failure. So sin is about more than just doing bad things. It describes how we easily deceive ourselves and spin illusions to redefine our bad decisions as good ones. So why are humans such bad judges between moral failure and success? Well, the first appearance of the word sin in the Bible offers an insight. There are these two brothers, Cain and Abel. Their parents had just given in to this beastly temptation to redefine good and evil by their own wisdom, and now Cain is faced with a similar choice. He's jealous and angry that God has favored his brother, and so God warns him, if you don't choose what is good, chata is crouching at the door, it wants you. But you can rule over it. So in these stories, sin, or moral failure, is depicted as this wild, hungry animal that wants to consume humans. And we know how that story ends. The Bible is trying to tell us that failed human behavior, our tendency towards self-deception, it runs deep. It's rooted in our desires and selfish urges that compel us to act for our own benefit at the expense of others. And it leads to this chain reaction of relational breakdown. This is why in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul describes hamartia as a power or a force that rules humans. In his words, we are slaves to sin. He even says sin lives in us so that the things I don't want to do, that's what I do. So with the word sin, the biblical authors are offering a robust description of the human condition. It's a failure to be humans who fully love God and others. It's our inability to judge whether we're succeeding or failing. And it's that deep, selfish impulse that drives much of our behavior. This is not a pretty picture of ourselves, but if we're honest, it's realistic. So sin, a failure to be truly human by loving God and loving others. And so there's this picture of what, what true humanity is supposed to look like, what being human is really all about, and, and sin is failing at that goal. It's failing at loving God. It's failing at loving others. It's missing the mark. Or they, they said there's that line that's just so true and so haunting that sin describes how easily we deceive ourselves and spin illusions to redefine our bad decisions as good ones. And that right there, that idea of failing to be human, spinning our bad decisions as good ones, and just blowing everything up, that is actually what is wrong with you. And that's what's wrong with me. And that is what is wrong with us and what is wrong with the world. When we look at all of the worst decisions we've made, all the pain in our life, all of our regrets, when I would, if I had to look at, okay, what is wrong with my life or what is wrong with me? Here's the reality. The common denominator <laughs> In all of those situations and what's wrong with my life, the common denominator is me. I am there for all of my bad decisions. I am there for all the pain and all the things that I wish wouldn't happen. Like there's a, there's a sense in which I am what is wrong. Like the problem with my life and your life and our world and our collective like, like time together, whatever that is, the problem is not, it's not my parents, it's not your parents. The problem is not your teachers, okay? The problem is not someone else that's not out there somewhere, the problem is, is not, okay, now listen up, okay? What, what is wrong with your life and what is wrong with the world is not the left, okay? It's not the right, all right? Some of you really need to hear this, and if you think, is he talking to me? Then yes, I'm probably talking to you. What's wrong with your life and what's wrong with the world? It is not and was not Trump. 
and it is not Biden. Like that is not actually the core of what is actually going on and what is wrong. The primary problem with you and with me and with every single human as individuals and then when we come together collectively all throughout human history is this issue of sin. We constantly fail, man, to love God and to love others. We miss the mark at what it really means to be human. And man, that sin, that issue, it destroys us. It destroys the people around us. It separates from us from God. It devours us. Like we are, uh, like as as you saw in the video, we are slaves to it. It's like, like, I don't even want to do these things. Why do I keep doing it? Because that's the reality. Like sin destroys our lives. No one goes into their life thinking, man, I hope I just blow it. I hope I destroy everything. I hope I burn every bridge. I hope I ruin it. I really hope, like I'm, I hope I can blow up this marriage. I hope I can jack up my kids where they never talk to me again. I hope I can get addicted. I hope I can get so upside down financially that I'll never get out. I hope I can lose all of my integrity. Like nobody wants that. That's nobody's goal. But we end up being a slave to sin. We do it anyway. And we get stuck in the cycle of over and over and over again. And like, it's so hopeless feeling because like, man, I can't get myself out. As much as I try, I can't do it. In fact, as much as I try, a lot of times it seems like I make things worse, right? We can't escape that reality. We actually need someone to reach in and pull us out of that cycle of destruction and death and sin. Uh, and that's, why, that's what Jesus comes to do. That's the beautiful news about the Christian message, about the gospel. There's a recognition of like, yeah, I am messed up, and there is an issue, and that kind of sucks, but, but the, the great news is I don't have the pressure of feeling like I have to fix that, that someone comes along and offers to redeem me. Um, D.A. Carson's a Bible scholar, and he says that uh, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death. And so he sent us a savior. All right, so there's lots of things like what's all wrong with the world and God wants you to do something about this and that and this little thing over here and that thing over there. And it's like, yes, those issues are legit and yes, those issues are real, but all of those things ultimately are just symptoms of the greater problem. God says, listen, I I don't want to just treat the symptoms. I want to to eradicate the disease at its source. I'm coming after sin, so I am sending a Savior. And so John says, hey, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. Sin is the issue. Jesus has come to do something about that, and he's come to do something about it as the Lamb of God. Throughout John's gospel, um, he kind of gives a lot of different titles to Jesus. But this is the first one that we really see. Like this first kind of, this idea of the Lamb of God. John really likes that phrase, actually. He uses it in his gospel, in his letters, excuse me, in in, um, uh, Revelation that he writes as well. There's this picture of Jesus as the Lamb. Now that may have lost some of its significance on us, um, living at the time and place that we do now. We think Lamb and we're like, aww. It's cuddly. It's cuddly and soft and fluffy, but that's not the picture that John is communicating. It's not a soft, cuddly lamb. Like the lamb of God, to to John's audience at this time and in this place, he's communicating to a primarily Jewish audience. The lamb of God was a picture of a bloody sacrifice. It was a picture of 
of, of violence. It was a picture of death. It was a picture. It was, it was not a pretty picture. An innocent lamb being slaughtered to cover over sin. That was the picture that they got. And there was there's all kinds of Old Testament passages that this is referring to. These things that were um, foreshadowed, these things that were like a precursor to Jesus, that were pointing things to the ultimate sacrifice. It's all throughout, again, the Old Testament scriptures and John's uh, original audience would have been so familiar with this. These would have been the images that were coming to their mind. Things like uh, Genesis 22, there's this inc- like, uh, account with um, Abraham and his son Isaac. And God has told Abraham, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. I'm, I'm going I'm to make you a great nation. And actually, that promise that God gave to Abraham was going to be carried on through Isaac. And so the world would be blessed then through Isaac's line. And, and, and like he would become a great nation. But God tests Abraham and says, I want you to go and sacrifice uh, Isaac. And it's like, what? I can't, like, like how, how is this going to happen? And the question is really, okay, Abraham, are you going to try to uh, do this on your own and make this promise come true by yourself? Or are you going to trust that I've promised it and it will happen? And so even if Isaac dies, I can resurrect him. Uh, even if he dies, uh, like the promise will carry on. Like I, I, I will not fail you. And so Abraham does this great display of faith and he's, 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 they're going to, to sacrifice Isaac and Isaac asks this question along the way. He's like, where is the sacrificial animal? Like what are we going to sacrifice here? And there's this line, Abraham says, God himself will provide the sacrifice. Like, like this, this foreshadowing that would come in Jesus, that God himself is providing the sacrifice, literally himself being the sacrifice. It's, uh, this is calling back to things like the Passover lamb, where as God is rescuing um, the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, the, the one, during the, like the last of the 10 plagues, they're, they're told to, to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood above their doorposts, and that will protect them as the angel of death passes over. It's, 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 it's drawing on these images of um, the Day of Atonement, where the high priest would sacrifice a lamb for the, for the sins of the entire uh, nation to pay for their sins. And then the second part of that was that there was a scapegoat, that the priest would confess the sins of the people onto this other lamb, onto this other goat, and cast that other one out into the wilderness, out into the land of death and destruction and, and pain. Like, and like the, I, the, the, the visual image of taking the sin of the people out of their presence, out of the camp. Like that, that phrasing that John uses, the Lamb of God who, who takes away, literally it means to, to lift up and carry off the sins, to, to pick it up off the people and to carry it off somewhere else. That's this picture of, of the scapegoat, of the, the sins are going onto it and it is, we're getting it out of here. Uh, pictures of like Isaiah 53, the, this suffering servant kind of imagery where it, it, it's talking about the Messiah that would come, who would be Jesus that he was like a lamb being led to the slaughter. And so there's all this imagery coming around, and this is the picture that would be coming into to, to John's um, original audience into their mind. He's like, there's a, there's a sin issue here, and so we need a lamb. And he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he says that, and when the people behold, when they turn, when they look, they don't see a lamb. They see a person. They see the person of Jesus, and there's... Honestly, there's this kind of this gruesome, a little bit morbid um, picture that's got blood just written all over it from thousands of years of history and foreshadowing uh, that this would happen. Um, and this is all before the cross, right? This is a couple of years before the cross. But even before that moment, there's a picture of this is what Jesus has come to do. He has come to, to, um, to do something about that core issue that we have, the thing that, that is most broken about us, that is most uh, essential. If we want to live a truly human life, there's something that has to be addressed, and it is 
that sin issue. And it's, it's kind of shocking and it's extreme. And sometimes, as honestly, as modern people or as Christians, it's easy for us to go, well, man, isn't that, isn't that a bit excessive? Like, did, did it really have to go that far? Did it have to be so extreme? I can't believe, like, Jesus would have to die. I can't believe God would do that. Um, but man, I think that just shows how almost lightly sometimes we take sin. Because right, you know what? The, the sacrifice of Jesus, it is extreme. But that's how bad our sin is. That's how serious of an issue it is. It's not just some flippant thing of like, eh, yeah, you know, I guess we're kind of messed up. I mean, it's like you, 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 think, man, you, you, you think about human history and how bloody it's been and how violent and how hate-filled and in, injustice-filled. Like, like human history is one awful story. You think about all of the evil done throughout all of time, and it's like, it is extreme. And so what like, had to be done about it is extreme as well. And so Jesus comes as the Lamb of God to address our most core issue, the issue of sin. He wants to lift it up and carry it off. He wants to take the things, the things in your life, again, what you have done, what's been done to you, what you've contributed to, all of the stuff where we fail to be human and we destroy everything. He wants to come and say, I want to remove that from you. I want to forgive you from that. I want to take that off of you. I want to give you a fresh start. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He continues and says, this is the one I told you about. That after me, and he quotes himself, after me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. So when John was saying, hey, there's, there's one coming after me, he's greater than me. There's one coming after me, he's greater than me. He's like, this is the one. And he's greater than me because he existed before me. Like that, that he's, Essentially, he's saying he's greater than me because he is the eternal God. Like, the, you're looking at God in the flesh. He says, I, I, didn't, I didn't know him, which is weird because John actually did know Jesus. They were some sort of, of cousins. Um, but John didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah, as the promised one, it seems like, until this moment when something happens. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. John testified, um, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove. There's another picture of an animal. So we've got the lamb, we've got the dove. He, he, he descended like a dove and he rested on him. So the Spirit comes down and rests on Jesus. And it's like, does it look like a dove? Is it imagery? We're not really sure. But he's like, there's this picture of the Spirit descending on Jesus. And John's like, this is the guy. This is the one we're waiting for. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And check this out, verse 33. He says, I didn't know him. Again, he's, he's kind of repeating. I didn't know him until this happened. I didn't know him until I saw this. But he who sent me to baptize with water, I was talking about God. This was like the calling on John's life to prepare people for what God was about to do. So he who sent me told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on. So when you see the Spirit come down and rest on someone that John is seeing here in Jesus, that that person, he, is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He's the one that baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And so John's like, he said, I baptize with water, like, but, but there's one coming after me. He's greater than me. He's going to baptize with something else. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And this word baptize, the Greek word is this word baptismo. And it literally means it means to submerge, to plunge under. Like there's this idea of like just being completely surrounded, submerged, plunged under, immersed in, soaking wet, like saturated with the Holy Spirit. That Jesus comes to saturate people with his 
spirit. And this is a massive idea. Um, this is another indicator that, uh, that what God had promised was breaking in, that what God had promised, uh, it was happening in their midst. And, and to, to the, the Jewish people living in the first century, there was this idea of two different ages. There was the present age, um, which was the, the age that was just ruled and destroyed by sin and death and destruction. Israel was, um, they, they were under uh, foreign like uh, rule and oppression, like things were really, really bad. But then there would be the age to come. And the age to come